0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. We love getting to see some of our family that we're not seeing very often these days um, in those videos in the Advent readings. So we just thank you guys for filming that and for the rest of the people that have been filming some of our Advent readings and bringing those in. Well, if uh, you didn't know, today we are 12 days away from Christmas, if my math is correct. So we're flying through this Advent season. And as we have talked about in the last two weeks of Advent, really this time, this month leading up to Christmas, is a time that's often called a middle space. It's a time when we look back on Jesus' first coming as a baby, and then we look forward in anticipation to his return one day. And so Advent is a reminder that we live in this in-between. We live in the tension between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We live in the now and the not yet, right? Do you remember when we talked about inaugurated eschatology? If you need a definition on that, ask Nick. He'll, He'll teach you all about it. But the now and the not yet. That Jesus came, brought redemption, but he hasn't put everything back to the way it should be yet until he returns. And so in Advent, we've been in the book of Ruth. We've been going through the book of Ruth because Ruth is also about this middle space. Ruth is about these tiny, no-name people who live in a little town, who had some traumatic things happen, and then had a miraculous redemption and victory. But the whole time you read this story, you don't quite understand how this is going to work out. And the happily ever after resolution doesn't come until the very end. And as we work our way through this book, it's like the uh, the connect the dots analogy that we talked about a few weeks ago. The picture isn't quite clear until the very end, until all the dots are connected. And so the whole time as we're reading Ruth, we're wondering, how is God working in this story? What can God possibly be doing? And this week, as we reach chapter three, we are kind of stuck in that tension of wondering, what could God be doing in this story? it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger and and it enters into this season of waiting where we just wonder what on earth could God be doing. But what we see is that even when it's not clear, even in the waiting for God to act, even in the uncertainty, God is using everything and every event in some way to connect to his purpose. And so in chapter 3, I would say about half the dots are connected here. It's starting to kind of make sense, but it's still a little unclear. And hopefully as we go, a few more will be connected and it'll make a little more sense. And as we read in chapter 3, I think kind of the main idea that God is teaching us through Ruth chapter 3 is that when we are waiting on God, we have a choice. We can choose to be a reckless fool or we can take a faith-filled risk. And it's in the waiting that we're faced with this. Now, first and foremost, I think we have to acknowledge waiting stinks. Okay. I might even go so strong as to say waiting sucks. That's strong language. I'm sorry for being vulgar, but waiting is no fun. It is horrible. It is hard. Waiting can feel heavy and tedious and it can tear us down and we do it over and over And still, it feels like nothing. And at the end of the day, when we have waited for so long for something, we just feel broken down and burdened. But waiting doesn't actually tear us down. In fact, when we wait on the Lord, when we wait properly, waiting on Him actually builds us up. See, Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 28, when he writes this. He says, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. So while waiting can feel like it tears us down, waiting actually builds us up. And in that sense, waiting is a lot like lifting weights at the gym. It's tiring. It hurts. We can do it over and over and over again and still have a really hard time seeing the results. But it's good for us. It's really good for us to do. And as we continue to lift that weight towards God, we're slowly becoming stronger. We are slowly growing. However, because waiting is so difficult... Oftentimes, we have the tendency to take a shortcut, right? Or to try to get out of it. Or to try to do it improperly. And just like with lifting weights, if we do it improperly, we face injury. Zach, did I tell you my back hurts from lifting stuff? I did tell you that? <laughs> I hurt my back lifting a bunch of furniture at Seraphim this last week. And every time I see Zach, I remind him that. And he reminds me that, like, Evan, I know, you're complaining all week. So. <laughs> But when we lift things improperly, when we use improper form, we risk injury. It's only when we lift things properly that we grow. Now, one of our good friends um, is a trainer in a gym, and at his gym, he has one regular uh, there who's a big, buff guy, great at working out, and he's become somewhat Instagram famous for his really dangerous, really elaborate workouts. Um, and this guy is amazing at it. He does a really good job. But what our friend who's the trainer has an issue with is even though this guy can do the workouts pretty well, the next day he'll see some Joe Schmo trying to recreate the workout again. And I have a video of the workout and this is just something that the average person should not be doing. This, this is a reckless approach to lifting weights and to working out. That is pretty dangerous, and this is how you're going to get hurt. And so we have a video here of it. I've wanted to use this guy as a bad example for a long time, (laughs) but uh, he's huge, and I was always afraid he would find out about it and beat me up. But now that he lives in Salem and we live here, I think there's enough miles between us that it should be safe. Um, But just go ahead and check out this elaborate workout that he does. And one of the main things... It's, it's almost like he has that hype music that gets you really pumped, but I almost would rather put like circus music over it. Because it's just like, that is, what can you possibly be doing that's good for you? You're just risking injury. Like We're all impressed and we're amazed, but that's a little reckless. That's a little dangerous. And you could do the workout that your trainer has instructed, or you can come up with some crazy elaborate reckless workout. And essentially, as we look at chapter three here, this standing on top of an exercise ball with a squat bar on our back and doing battle ropes, this is kind of how Naomi approaches her weight in this chapter. She says, oh, I could do what God has instructed, or I could come up with something better, something even more exciting. And so if you open your Bibles up to Ruth chapter three, we're going to look at this reckless scheme that Naomi has come up with. We're going to see how Naomi has attempted to take things into her own hands instead of following God's instructions to Him. And what we see here is that when we're in these seasons of waiting on God, we're faced with that choice. Do we be a reckless fool or do we take a faith-filled risk? And we really see the contrast between faithfulness and foolishness. The fact that faithfulness depends on God. Foolishness is depending on us. And so that is Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have laying around, it's on page 260. It will also be on the screen. So Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drinking and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. So stop there. Now what exactly is Naomi's end goal here? Because on the surface, it looks a little bit like she's planning to seduce Boaz with Ruth, right? Right? Or maybe just secure her own own future through Boaz. And really, there, there, I think, is potential that Naomi is just very concerned for Ruth's well-being. And she says that in the beginning, I want rest for you. I want you to have a husband. And this was really her goal. She cared that Ruth would have a husband. Because that would really be the best thing for her in that case. Which I know sounds a bit archaic, but this is an old time when really a woman had no safety or security apart from her family or apart from a man. And so back then, her wanting that marriage for Ruth was a good thing. But I think they were after a good thing in an ungodly way. She was taking things into her own hands and coming up with this reckless plan. And we remember exactly who's proposing this plan here, Naomi. This is the woman who just a few chapters ago said, "You know, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. I want you to call me Mara because Naomi means sweet and Mara means bitter. And now, because of what God has done to me, I'm bitter to the core. Right? God has been bad to me. His hand is against me. He's cursed me. I can't depend on Him anymore. And so what Naomi has done here is come up with a plan where she doesn't have to depend on God. She can depend on the fact that she's sending a young woman to be alone with a single man. And she can depend on her own plan and not on the God who she thinks she can't rely on anymore. And now the first thing she instructs her to do, as we just read, is to dress herself up a bit. Now in the ancient world at this time, a widow dressed the part. Um, You wore clothes that signified that you were in mourning and that you're a widow. And so what Naomi's instructing Ruth to do is take off all your w- widow getup, put on clothes that say, yeah, I'm ready for a new man. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, and go out there and get him. You know. And she tells Ruth not to just go talk to him in the daylight, but to wait until after he's done eating and drinking. And what we remember is this was their first harvest in 10 years. So it's probably safe to assume that there was a bit of a party going on, and she said, go when he's out of sight, alone, and asleep. One of the things we'll realize from this chapter is that this is not good dating advice. Um, pro tip, if you want to start a conversation with someone, don't go when they're asleep. Go when they're awake. Because people who are awake actually make for better conversation than people who are asleep. But I'm sure Naomi and Ruth knew that, right? And so it doesn't seem to be about a conversation, does it? Go when he's asleep. Go to him when he's alone and then uncover his feet, whatever that means. Now one commentator commented on this and said, you know, there is nothing sexual about this. It's just that his feet would get cold and then he would wake up. Sure, right? Okay, here's another pro tip. Um, If you're trying to wake someone up who you're not married to, you might be tempted to think, well, I'll just uncover their feet and climb into bed with them. You might think that's a good idea. My advice is don't do that. Here's an alternative. Just say, hey, wake up. I think it's just as effective, but less likely to lead to adultery, actually. So I would do that instead. Now, another source I read points out that this was not the typical word used for feet in these days. Um, There are other words that literally mean feet. This word was often used just to describe the lower extremities. Um, And so Naomi did not instruct her just to uncover the feet, but to uncover the lower half. So again, not the greatest dating advice we get here. This shouldn't really give you ideas on how... To go find a date. And this doesn't really give me many ideas on how to counsel people through that. It does give me one idea, though, and that is to start a new Christian dating site called uncoverhisfeet.com <laughs> which, that domain is currently available. It is. No one owns it. I was so surprised. Nobody owns that, and I'm thinking, maybe I'll just buy that, and then I can redirect to commonground.org. <laughs> Coverhisfeet.com? I'm kidding. I can't afford it.com. Maybe we could do it but anyway. Now, it's unlikely, even as provocative as this looks, it's unlikely that Naomi is instructing Ruth to sleep with Boaz. But at the same time, she's not not instructing her to do that, right? Put yourself in this position and just see what the man wants to do. That's a little sketchy. And if you remember from chapter 2 last week, um, as Nick preached on, this is the time of the judges. This is a time where everyone did as they saw fit. They were not following God's laws. And in a season, in, in a culture where everyone does as they see fit, women were regularly abused. And so Boaz explicitly directed Ruth, stay away from my male workers and surround yourself with the female workers or else you will likely be assaulted. So this wasn't... A situation where there wouldn't have been any tension. This wasn't like a prudish culture where two people of the opposite sex could be in a bed together and there wouldn't be tension. This was a plan that would put Boaz in a situation where he would be tempted, where these thoughts would come up. Especially because all of this took place on the threshing floor. And the threshing floor, especially around harvest time and around payday, this was actually the place where the prostitutes would hang out and where they would work. So not only is this a vulnerable position for Ruth, but this is probably a place that a young single woman should not be in general. So this is a dangerous plan. And it's dangerous for all those reasons and the vulnerable situation. It's also dangerous just for how irregular it was. You see, it was irregular for a woman to come up to a man and approach him, for a younger person to approach an older person, For a field worker to approach, essentially, her boss and the owner of the field. And it was irregular for all those different reasons. It essentially broke every social convention of that day. And this was Naomi's reckless plan. It just wasn't smart. It was put in place as if to say, God, you haven't provided for me before, so we're going to do anything and everything we can to get what we need. Even if it means disobeying and dishonoring you. I'm taking matters into my own hands. But what we will see is that Boaz doesn't give in to this plan. Instead, he expresses God's Hesed love that we learned from the first few chapters. And that contrast between Naomi's plan and Boaz's response is here intentionally. Because one says, I can't rely on God. I just need to take any means necessary to get what I want. And the other says, I can rely on God and I can hold these plans with open hands to God and honor him, even if it means missing out on what I want. And we're going to see that contrast here. So as we consider this reckless plan, I just ask that you would consider this question here of where in your life right now might you be tempted to take matters into your own hands? might you be tempted to come up with something reckless in your waiting in order to make sure that the results depend on you and not on God? When in your life are you tempted to take matters into your own hands? So this was the reckless plan. But Ruth responds to this plan, not just in blind obedience to it. She responds with a faith-filled risk. See, she didn't actually follow all of Naomi's instructions here. Jump back into the story, uh, verse 8. It was at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And stop there. So so Boaz wakes up. He's surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. You would be surprised if you woke up to find someone sleeping at your feet who wasn't previously sleeping at your feet. And so he asks what anyone would ask, Who are you? And Ruth just responds, Hi, I'm Ruth. I work here. Uh, and if Ruth was going along with the reckless plan, her instructions were supposed to be, Well, just do whatever he says. Just go there, put yourself in a position, keep quiet, do what he says. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't stop there. Instead, she goes right for it. And she boldly makes that request and says, spread your wings over your servant. You are a redeemer. So Ruth, she's knowing that they're waiting on God, that she needs a husband, that they're waiting for results. And she says, "Okay, I can do something about this. I can act, but I can also honor God in the process. I can also leave it up to God. And so she makes this this request of him to fulfill this responsibility of a redeemer. She invokes that responsibility that Boaz has. She says, "For you are a redeemer." And you re- might remember from the last chapter, kind of the role of a redeemer. Um, Naomi had said that Boaz is a relative, and he's one of the family redeemers, or a kinsman redeemers. Now, every family in ancient Israel at the time had about one or more redeemers, and they were responsible for five main things, typically. If there was a loss of life by murder, the Redeemer would seek justice. Um, If a family member found themselves into debt and had to sell themselves into slavery, then the Redeemer would go pay off that debt and buy them back. If a family member had to mortgage their property or was at risk of losing their property due to debt, the Redeemer would pay that off so the family didn't lose the land. And if a family member had committed a crime, they would pay those fines and fees. And if a member of the family died without children and this Redeemer was single, then they would marry the widow... And carry on the name, or if the parents had died, then it was kind of a godparent situation. They would raise the kids. So these were kind of the main responsibilities. And it was all about restoring and protecting the lives of the people of Israel. And it required a lot of the Redeemer. They had to sacrifice a lot of their own resources and time and focus their life on redeeming this family member. And if you're familiar much with the Bible, you hear those five responsibilities. That sounds a lot like Jesus, right? You can kind of connect the dots to what Jesus does in our life. And now one of the most important things to know about the role of a redeemer is that it wasn't just some clever like financial legacy planning. This was actually a theological statement. This whole idea of the redeemer came out of God's role in the lives of the Israelites and God's role in our lives today. You see, if you go way back to the to the start of that nation, God called Abraham and, and Sarah, and they said that God said that I will make you a nation so large you'll be like the stars in the sky. But at the time, Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. And so God blessed them. The children. And it was important that this line of children would continue, that this line of descendants would continue. And then when they were enslaved in Egypt, and God freed them from slavery, he said, I'm now going to give you a land. And it's very important that you continue to be in this land. And so the Israelites knew that really their claim to fame or their connection as God's people was this continuous line of descendants and this maintenance of their place in the promised land. And so this role of a redeemer was all to protect that, to make sure that their descendants continued and that they stayed in that land. And so that was not just financial planning. That's a theological statement of what God has done for them. And Ruth here invokes that. And in chapter 2, what we read last week, Boaz had said to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so now here in chapter 3, Ruth remembers what Boaz has said. The God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And Ruth essentially then says to Boaz, if this is who you claim your God to be, a God of refuge, then prove it. Then be that refuge. Then put your wings over me. And that's a bold, gutsy claim. That's a bold thing to say to this man, especially with a power dynamic. She doesn't really have any right to request this, but she took that faith-filled risk. And when she says, put your wing over me, that phrase is actually an idiom that was pretty common in this day, and she wasn't just saying, like, cuddle me or anything like that. This was an idiom that actually meant marry me, which is not actually how proposals worked back then. (laughs) Um, The woman didn't just climb into bed and say marry me. (laughs) and what would lead Ruth to taking such a risk though? see I think it was her faith I think this was an act of faith you see faith causes us to trust God with the results and so it often leads us to take risks and the more faith filled risks we take the more our faith grows the more we depend on him for the results instead of on us Of course, not all risks are faith-filled risks. They can be reckless. And so the way that we determine, okay, what is a faith-filled risk? And what is just reckless foolishness? It's does this risk make us look more or less like Jesus? And are the results dependent on me, or are they dependent on God? And we see this contrast between Naomi's plan that completely depended on them and the fact that she was a young woman. And that would dishonor God. And then we see Ruth's response invoking this redeemer role which God has set into place and making it clear that the plan, or that her intent here, is not to seduce so; It's for marriage. And we see this contrast. So as we see Ruth's faith-filled risk here, we have to consider this. Consider this question. Right now, how might God be calling you to take a faith-filled risk? Where in your life do you sense Him calling you to trust Him with the results? Calling you to approach something with open hands? Or to honor Him when the temptation is maybe to take it in a, better, in a different direction? How might God be calling you to take a faith-filled risk? Now, you see, Naomi's plan was reckless. She wanted Ruth um, to go out there with no obedience to God's law and just to try to make things happen. But Ruth was faithful, and she said, I can make things happen, and I can honor God. Now, after what was probably a pretty startling wake-up call for Boaz, um, he responds in verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you have made this last kind you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So just as Ruth had said to Naomi, you know, I'll do all that you ask. Now Boaz is saying, You know, may you be blessed, and he's extending his kindness. And really what's happening is he's not just like giving in to this confident woman in this awkward situation. What's happening is that Ruth's big faith, Ruth's faith-filled risk, Ruth's display of God's Hesed love has now affected Boaz. It's contagious. Her big faith has brought out the strength in Boaz. You see, when a person performs an act of risky faith, Um, just as my friend struggles with people at his gym trying to mimic um, what that guy does on the medicine balls, recklessness and riskiness it can be kind of contagious in good ways, but also in bad ways. Um, But in the good way here, as Ruth takes this faith-filled risk, Boaz then says, Okay, well, I can take a faith-filled risk as well. I can trust God for results that don't depend on me. And he makes this commitment that he doesn't actually have to make. See, in that culture, Ruth was not the kind of person you'd want to marry. Um, when looking for someone you'd marry back in that day, you don't consider like appearance or compatibility like we do today. Uh, marriage back then was pretty much about you know family alliances, social, economic security. And by that standard, even if Ruth was really young, smart, pretty, and had it all, she didn't have anything that you would want in marriage. She was worthless in that society, and nonetheless. Boaz looks at her and says, You're a worthy woman. And he makes this commitment that he doesn't actually have to make to her. He says, Do not fear, I will do all that you ask. And just as Ruth's hesed love was displayed through her love to Naomi, now Boaz's hesed love is being displayed to Ruth. And So going back in verse 12... Just when things are looking good and Boaz makes this commitment and things are looking great, it's looking like this this plan got redirected by God and now there's a glimmer of hope and Boaz is going to do something and redeem his family, there's a bit of a hiccup in verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do that. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down into the morning. So you see there's actually someone ahead in line of Boaz. He's not the first redeemer here. He's second in line, essentially. Which means Boaz isn't actually legally obligated to do anything. If you're second in line... You could just say, well, you know, I don't really like girls who sleep at my feet. Just not really my type. Uh, and I have a good thing going where I don't have to financially support you. So he could just move on with life and not have to worry about it. Because it's really the responsibility of this first redeemer. But God's love has moved in Boaz's heart. And so he takes this faith-filled risk to make a commitment that he doesn't have to make. That if the real redeemer doesn't redeem you, okay, I will do it. I'll take that responsibility. And now Boaz, he's probably a guy that's been waiting to be married for a long time, for his whole life. He's not the most eligible bachelor anymore. He's probably up there in age. And in his own mind, at this point, he has probably had the thought, well, my chance at getting married is over. At this age, no one is going to pursue me to marry their daughter. Um, I might as well just focus on my work and just farm all day and all night. I've missed my shot. And now all of a sudden, this young woman has come to him, climbed in bed with him, and said, marry me. And so I think any guy in his position at that time would probably not tell the other Redeemer about that, right? Would not just defer to the guy who's in line. Right, This guy has been searching for a lifetime, and now he has this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When Boaz could just take control and take things into his own hands, but instead he says, no, I'm going to hold this with open hands. I'm going to depend on God, and I'm going to honor God's law. So again, Boaz is saying, I'll trust God with the results, not myself. And there's this contrast between Boaz's response and that original reckless plan between this faith-filled risk and what could be really reckless, foolish choice. He says, I'll follow God's law, even if it means I could potentially lose out on this. Uh, Ruth could go marry this other guy. This whole field that I would then become the owner of, it could be this other guy's and I would miss out on all that. But I'm going to hold that with open hands and see what God's will is. And at its most fundamental level, this is faith, Right? choosing to trust God when you could potentially lose something that you want. Choosing to obey God's command even if it means maybe missing out on someone or something that you really wanted. You see, if we ever pursue something else or we ever hold tighter to our own will or what what we want, if we hold that tighter than God's will or what God instructs, I mean, that's idolatry, right? That's foolishness depending on us. It's faith when we depend on Him. At Boaz, He had been waiting for a long time and He still chose to depend on God. Now Jesus was, He was tempted to end His waiting too. When He was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, He was fasting for 40 days. I'm sure He was waiting for those 40 days to be up. And then the devil came to him and said, Hey, why don't you just turn those rocks into food? Go ahead. Turn those rocks into food. Take matters into your own hands and fill your belly. And in that situation, Jesus was tempted to take matters into his own hands. And instead of saying like, well, God, just speed up time for me or, or make me not hungry or just take this temptation away. Jesus responded with, I don't need food. I just need to obey God. I feast on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And he refused to take things into his own hands. And Joseph, Jesus' father, as we connect this to the Christmas story, when he found out Mary was pregnant and it wasn't his kid, he was tempted to leave her. He was tempted to take things into his own hands and to get out of that situation. And then a messenger from God came and told him, No, hold your hands open. Don't do what you think is best, but stay with her and cling to her. And so he did. And we have all these instances of chances to take things into our own hands and to take things in a direction that we want instead of depending on God and what he is going to do. So back to verse 14. So after Boaz said all that, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So here he's protecting her reputation, making it clear that they've honored the Lord here. And then he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and he put it on her. Then she went into the city. And now when he put six measures of barley, that's actually totaled to about 80 pounds, the estimate. So not only is Ruth like courageous and brave and faithful, she's also jacked. (laughs) Bellas is probably like just seeing how much she can handle and he's like, wow, what a woman. But in verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. First off, I love the response of Boaz. Um, in verse 17, where he said, You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And in a sense. This is like a message to Naomi to say, I know what you tried to do. <laughs> all right? Not so fast. I know what you tried to scheme and make happen. I know you're trying to take matters into your own hands because you're so anxious for this resolution. But don't worry. I'll take care of this. And he gives all this barley to supply for her waiting. He says, don't try to take things into your own hands. I will provide. And this is such a beautiful reflection of how Jesus provides for us. He has provided redemption and he has given us salvation for those who believe in him. But we still are in the season of waiting for his return. Things are still not quite right. We still face hope and despair. We still face joy and sadness. We still wait for him to work sometimes. And nonetheless, he, he sees us scheming. He sees us trying to take matters into our own hands and make these reckless plans, and Jesus still says, I see what you're trying to do. I see your reckless scheming. I'll still bless you. And I'll still encourage you to know that redemption is on the way. Just relax and let me handle the results. And even when Jesus knows our plans, and even when He should judge us and condemn us for that, instead He says, I will redeem you. Redemption is on the way. And what this story of Ruth chapter 3 reminds us of in the Advent season is that redemption is on the way. Jesus who will one day come back and judge us and look at us and those of us who believe in him and who are born of the Holy Spirit, he will say, you are mine and I'm keeping you. And this story looks forward to that day when He will redeem the entire world. But yet, there's still this bit of a cliffhanger where we don't really know what's going to happen between now and then. For now, in the Advent, we're still in the in-between where things can be pretty uncomfortable. And in this dark, twisted world, it's sometimes hard to see God's loving kindness. But what the story of Ruth reminds us is that even in these cliffhangers, even in the uncertainty, even in the pain of the waiting... Behind the scenes, God is still working. And even though it's not clear yet, just like the connect the dots analogy, one day it's all going to be connected and it will all make sense. And for the time being, he's given us a whole lot to provide for our waiting. And whether they know it or not, this trio, they were caught up in God's plan. Throughout history, God has been working through ordinary small people like this and ordinary small events, using their free will and their choices to still direct towards His plan. But in those seasons when it's not quite clear what He's doing, we'll be tempted to take control. We'll be tempted to come up with something reckless. We'll be tempted to to depend more on us than we do on Him. And so it's in these, these seasons that we must remember redemption is on the way and we can choose to depend on him for the results not on us and in those ways God continues to work behind the scenes and he continues to draw that beautiful picture of redemption that he's been drawing since then and so here in Advent as we're coming to the close of it we wait, we continue to wait continue to live in this middle space remembering that redemption is on the way that he has supplied for us. We wait for Christ's return expectantly. We've ended the last few sermons with lyrics from Christmas songs. I think it just happened accidentally, but now it's tradition, so we're going to continue doing that. And so I'm going to end with lyrics from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which I'm declaring right now as a Christmas song, just like I declared Ruth as a Christmas book. So wait a minute. Come the long-expected Jesus by Charles Wesley. He wrote, Come to earth to taste our sadness, He whose glories knew no end. By His life He brings us gladness, our Redeemer, Shepherd, and Friend. Let's pray. So, Father God, as we continue to wait for You to work in in the ways that we've requested, as we continue to to live in our season of in between, of the now and the not yet, when when things go the way they're not supposed to, and we we wait for your redemption of all creation, we choose to trust you. Continue to show us how we can take faith-filled risks and avoid being reckless fools. God, there's so many situations when. I get tempted to take control of it. I get tempted to take matters into my own hands. God, I want to hold those things open to you and to depend on you even if it means missing out on what I want. Jesus, it's our honor to glorify you and to honor you and to live out your plan and to draw out your picture. And so we just commit ourselves to you and we ask that you you would lead us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for working behind the scenes in the lives of these people so long ago and and the reminder that you continually work behind the scenes in our lives today. Help us to catch a glimpse of what it is you're doing in our lives today. That we may partner with you in your big story of redemption. So it's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.